0: You don't have to look very far in the Gospels to realise that Jesus was a master storyteller. Many of the examples and illustrations from everyday life that Jesus uses have found their way into our modern culture and vocabulary. And um, people involved in education, I suppose, know, don't they, that uh, people learn in different ways some people we're told are visual learners some people like to learn in, in all sorts of different ways but Jesus seems to have grasped even 2000 years ago before all the educationalists realised it that many of the stories uh, and, and, and parables that he would tell would have a compelling power and, uh, and we still remember them don't we all these years later last week Richard was exploring with us the story of a wedding banquet, the great banquet and how Jesus used that to illustrate certain aspects of his teaching I want to look this afternoon at perhaps one of the most famous stories that Jesus used and I've entitled our time together this afternoon A Tale of Two Builders Um, Jesus told a story about two men who both built their own houses and that in itself marks them out as manly, doesn't it? What could be more madly and satisfying than actually building your own house to live in? I I feel quite satisfied when I build my own tent uh, to camp in. But to build your own house, imagine that, to actually build your own house. These two men both built their own house, but they didn't build in quite the same way. One of them took time uh, to dig down through the soft ground to the hard, solid rock underneath. And so he built his house on a very strong and solid foundation. The other man was a little bit hasty, we might say. He didn't really think he had time to dig a foundation. So he just puts his kind of rent a kit house up on the soft ground. In good times, their two houses looked exactly the same. In good times. But the difference between them was revealed only when the weather turned nasty. I'm very grateful this weekend that the weather hasn't (coughs) been nasty. Because we uh, spent the night camping. It was quite warm actually, no rain. But these two houses looked exactly the same until the weather turned. And one of them fell down and was completely washed away. While the other stood firm and defied the worst that the elements could throw at it. Imagine that. You built your own house. The storm comes. And the house stands firm. Now Jesus himself explains what his story means. So there's a lot of work for us to do. We'll be over in about three minutes. But um, there's There's no guesswork involved. Because Jesus tells us what his story means. And he says that the man who built on no foundation, is like the person who hears the words of Jesus but doesn't act on them. While the man who bodes on the rock is the man who both hears Jesus' words and acts on them. So this little story that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 7 is very interesting because he's not really talking about what we might describe as out and out unbelievers both of these men represent people who heard Jesus the difference is that one of them was content just to listen while the other dug deeper and acted on what he heard with his ears they both look the same until trouble comes and then one of them is able to stand, and the other has nothing left to cling to, and his house is completely washed away. So we should just close in prayer now, shouldn't we? Because that's that's the story. Well, we want it's a very familiar story, isn't it? When we were kids in Sunday school, we used to sing a little song: "The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the foolish man built his house upon the sand." Um, Some of you, you you, you might know the tune. I can't get it out of my head when I was preparing this. But uh, one of the dangers with these familiar stories is that we can miss uh, so much, I think. So I just want to spend... This is what we're going to do, okay? I want to spend a little bit of time just walking through certain aspects of the story just to point out some things that have struck me as I've been mulling over this passage. Uh, Three things, actually. And then... I want to have a go at just thinking about the big picture behind the story and then we'll close by trying to apply these words to ourselves and our own lives okay so three things that have struck me the big picture and then we'll think about some application to take on is that a deal? Well, that better have be because that's what we're going to do <laughs> okay so three striking things about this story well, are some striking features. Look at that. Number one, I want to suggest to you that this story is quite shocking. Why do I claim that it's shocking? Well, let me try and explain that one. This story appears in two Gospels, with four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This story appears in Matthew and Luke, two Gospels. And in both of them, this little story comes at the end of a much longer sermon. Or talk an extended talk that Jesus gave. Uh, We read Matthew rather than Luke. We could have read Luke. But if you go back, it would be great if you keep your Bible open there because you can see. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1, Matthew says, Now when he, that's Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And there's the famous section there that's become known as the Beatitudes. There's all sorts of other teaching through chapter 5. All the way through chapter 6. All the way through chapter 7. And then at the end of chapter 7. It says when Jesus had finished saying these things the crowd were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teacher of the law. And then in chapter 8 he goes off and does some other stuff. So chapter 5, 6 and 7 is really one sermon. So the story we're looking at at the end of chapter 7 is Jesus' big finish. He's been preaching outdoors on a mountainside. This is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Very famous word to Jesus. He's getting to the end and it's his big finish. This is the finale. We know it's the finale because in verse 24 Jesus actually says, therefore. He's been preaching. He said everything he wanted to say. And now he comes to the end and he says, therefore, in other words, in the light of everything that I've just been saying, this is my conclusion that I want you to take away. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man and so on. Now, if you you went to a preacher's school or college where they teach you how to be a preacher... I wonder what advice they would give you on how to finish. It's one thing, isn't it, to be able to stand up and talk. But you've got to know when to end, haven't you? And how to end. I wonder what they teach you in preacher's college. It might be handy for me to go up there one day. <laughs> um, what, what do they teach you in preacher's college about how to finish? The reason I'm saying this is shocking... Is because when you stop and think about it, Jesus ends his sermon not on a positive note, not on an encouragement, but on a blatant downer. He could have told this story the other way around. He could have got the miserable, foolish man out of the way first and finished with this glorious picture of this house on the rock standing with all the rain laughing down. He could have finished on such a positive But he doesn't. He talks about that first, and then he finishes on a massive negative. And the final image is a shocking one. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And the sermon ends there. I don't think they're teaching preacher's college to end a sermon like that, would they? You'll appreciate that this was originally written in Greek and languages work differently don't they it always confused me at school doing languages because the word ordering sentences were different you know the adjectives come after the nouns and it's just really confusing this was written originally in Greek the word order is different but do you know what the last word of this sermon is in Greek it's the word mega I think the youth of today's culture would like that wouldn't they a sermon that ends with the word mega mega it's the Greek word for big or large or great. So the very last word of Jesus' sermon, the closing image of this house that looked secure, falling flat, and the last sentence of his sermon here is, and its fall was mega. That's how he finished. Thanks for coming, folks. See you next Sunday. Well, it wasn't on a Sunday, was it? I don't know what day of the week it was. He leaves them with a note of utter devastation, ruin. Just imagine how that sounds to the people listening. Maybe there were people in the crowd who had built their own house. I I get frustrated just playing Jenga. And the whole thing falls down. And you've only been playing for ten minutes, that's bad enough. But to have built your own house and then watch it being swept away all that work gone shattered none of us would wish that on anyone would we it is a terrible tragic scene and yet Jesus' sermon just it ends hanging there in the air complete devastation would you agree with me that that's quite shocking another thing that strikes me is the clarity and simplicity of this whole section. Again, anyone who's involved in education or has done any training or teaching knows the golden rule is don't confuse people with too many instructions. There's a little acronym, isn't there? KISS. Keep it simple. Stupid. Teachers are aware of that. Don't give people too many instructions. You confuse them. If you ever ask for directions, or worse still, someone asks you for directions, it's just down there, turn left, there, on the right, over the bridge, under the... You, you can't give people too many instructions. In that case, you just have to say, go down there in that directs, ask someone else, because you'll be a bit nearer then. You can't confuse people. It is very striking then, that in the section that Andrew read to us, from verse 13, there are only two specific commands. Jesus says a lot of stuff in these verses. But there are only two specific commands. The first one is in verse 13. Jesus says, enter. That's a command. Enter through the narrow gate. The second one is in verse 15. And Jesus says, watch out or beware of false prophets two commands and then he gets to the end of his sermon and he makes his big finish make sure you don't follow the crowd and make sure that no one leads you astray they're both kind of quite simple ideas aren't they Jesus fleshes out this this concept by contrasting a whole series of pairs the first one is in verse thirteen, two two different gates, two different roads. A wide road, a narrow road. A wide gate, a narrow gate. One's wide with loads of people on it. The other one is narrow with only a few people on it. Even though the people on these different roads can't quite see the destination, Jesus spells it out and says that one road leads to destruction and the other road leads to life. And so he says, enter the narrow gate, don't follow the crowd. The majority view is not necessarily the right view. Just because everyone is doing it, whatever it might be, doesn't mean it is right. We live in a very democratic culture now, don't we? Where if the majority wants something, generally, you know, they'll have it. His politicians have to give the majority what they want; otherwise, they would not get voted in, would they? That's the way this system works. Well, me- oh, it's meant to work, I suppose. But Jesus says, "Don't follow the crowd." But in addition to that, one of the things you'll need to bear in mind if you're not going to follow the crowd is you'll need to be careful who you listen to. Watch out for people. He calls them false prophets here. Watch out for people who come to you. Verse 15: They come to you in sheep's clothing. They look the part. Watch out who you listen to. Watch out for people who look like they mean well, but in the end, they will lead you away from where you need to be. Jesus proceeds to give some good advice on how to recognise who will do you good and who won't. And um, I suppose what Jesus is saying is, don't be such in by appearances. He says twice, you'll recognise good leaders by their fruit he says it in verse 16 by their fruit you'll recognise them and he says it again in verse 20 thus by their fruit you'll recognise them the kind of people you should listen to says Jesus are the kind of people who actually produce good things in their lives if people talk it but are not living it don't take any notice of them Why does Jesus say that? Well, Jesus goes on to say some of the most shocking verses in all the Bible, doesn't he? Verse 21. The reason is that not everyone who looks like a Christian is the real deal. And Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And even more shockingly, Many will say to me on that day Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles then I will tell them plainly I never knew you. Go away. Not everyone who looks the part is the real deal. Sometimes these verses are misquoted but the context here is that Jesus is urging people not to be gullible. He's saying that there are some teachers who will look every inch apart. But people are not always what they seem to be. So be careful who you listen to, who you follow. Not everything is what it claims to be. Jesus actually says there are people who look the part. They'll teach others. Some have even prophesied, even done miracles. And yet they haven't got the first clue what they're talking about. Don't, don't, just stop with me for a minute. Don't you think that that is an encouraging word to people who want to be careful? You might say, I'm not going to fall for stuff. I'm not a gullible person. I want to know whether something's right or, or not. Well, listen, if that's you, you're in good company. Because Jesus also cares about who you listen to. And he doesn't want you to be gullible. Jesus cuts through all the uncertainty and insecurity. He does it very graciously, but very clearly and bluntly as well. You want to be safe. You want to endure. You want your life to count. You want to last. You want to not be blown away or swept away. You want to know life and not miss the whole point of life. Then build your life on my words. And you'll be secure. That's what Jesus is really saying, isn't it? So not only is it shocking, but I think Jesus also is very, very simple. And then I was thinking of a third point that struck me, and I was trying to think, how can I make this one begin with S as well? Because shocking, simple, and then it came to me. Satan begins with C, but it sounds like an S, doesn't it? (laughs) I nearly spelt it with an S. The third thing that strikes me about this, is that what comes out of Jesus' mouth is utterly serious and full of conviction. He speaks with an authority that is very striking. If we're very familiar with these words, you might miss something here. Imagine you're in the crowd listening to a preacher or someone talk, and as they close their sermon, they say something like this. On judgment day, people will be pleading with me to be nice for them but I'll tell them to go away can you imagine a preacher saying that can you imagine any preacher saying on judgment day people will be pleading with me to be nice to them but I'll tell them to go away but isn't that exactly what Jesus just said here isn't it Many, verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not do X, Y, and Z? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me. You evildoers. Jesus is actually saying That he himself will be their ultimate judge. He's saying to them, You will all be there on that day, and so will I. But my job is to sit on the throne, and your destiny will be in my hands. What an amazing thing for him to say. I think you could see it in the reaction that Matthew records for us at the end of this sermon. In verse 28, Matthew says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. The people had never heard their preachers preach like this. This man was radically different. Some of you know that I'm doing some studies at the moment and having to write essays. And some of you also know that my background is more engineering, so I've not written an essay since I was about 16, because it was all science, not arts. So not only, not only am I having to learn how to write essays at the age of 42 after a 20-year gap, but I'm having to learn to write academic ones. And what a load of nonsense it is sometimes. You're not allowed to say, this is what I think. You have to say, well, this might be what I think, but Joe Blogg said so-and-so, and and, oh, by the way, someone else said the opposite. And trying to quote and cite all these different people, so-and-so says this, on the other hand, so-and-so says that, all the time having to quote and re-quote other people to build up your argument. That's how it works. That's exactly what the sermons of their rabbis were like. They would often be tedious and boring and filled with complicated comparisons. Rabbi so-and-so, 50 years ago, was an expert in this subject and he said this. But on the other hand, Rabbi so-and-so, he was an expert in this and he said this. And so what are we going to do with that? Well, we don't know. They disagree with one another, so make of it what you will. And their sermons were boring and tedious. No one had the courage of their convictions to say, Do you know what? This is what I think. They were comparing all the time. What word does Matthew use? Jesus taught with authority. I think what Matthew means is Jesus didn't stand on anyone else's shoulders, he didn't justify his opinions by appealing to other people to back him up. This is the Lord, this is the ultimate judge. When he taught, you can read the Sermon on the Mount when you get home. When he taught, he would say things like, You've heard that Moses said, but I say. And then Jesus closes by saying, It's not enough just to hear my words, you need to do them. There was a story of a businessman in America he wanted to expand his business into Europe, I don't know and he decided to move with his wife and kids it's not a true story, it's just an illustration but he moved with his wife and kids to Europe and he left his staff holding the fort in the office back in the States and every week he wrote to them to give his instructions on what he wanted them to do After a few months, he returned home. He was stunned to find that the whole office was in complete disarray. The grass in the car park had grown, cobwebs everywhere. He marched into reception. All the people are there with their feet up on the desk. What on earth are you doing? Did you not get my letters? They said, we did. They were great. Every week, we all meet as a bunch of staff and we read your letters. They're fantastic. They're written so well. And we all sit around and we discuss them and we talk about them. In fact, some of us have learned them off by heart. In fact, come over here, Bob, you can recite all the letters that the boss sent us, didn't you? And you know what the boss is going to say, don't you? I don't want you to memorize it. I don't want you to learn it. I want you to do it. And is that not how we are sometimes as Christians? We've heard it, we've memorized it. But have we done it? Jesus taught with. Authority. Do you know the reason these teachings are timeless is because they're from heaven. This is the Lord teaching here, not some clever chap. He never even went to university and yet his words are filled with wisdom and power and authority and simplicity. They're compelling. So there's three things that struck me anyway. It's shocking, it's simple. And there's conviction, authority, and certainty there. We're building up a little picture here, aren't we? As we unpack these familiar words. That was only point one, though, so we better write along. Otherwise, we'll be able to do. What was the second thing I said we'd do? The big picture. Yeah, well, that's us The larger context, okay. One important question here is. Why is Matthew even writing this? What is Matthew's motive? Who are his target audience? Now obviously, if we think about it for a minute, Jesus is saying real things to real people in a real place on the side of a mountain. So Jesus has an audience, the people who are sat on the grass listening to him. But why is Matthew, some decades later, writing this account of Jesus speaking to his audience? My question is, who's Matthew's audience? Why is it important to Matthew to record this in the way he does? There's actually two different audiences here. Jesus' audience and Matthew's audience. Do you get that? So our question is, what is Matthew's overall aim in recording this sermon of Jesus? Some of the Gospels do have a particular aim in mind. Some of the writers tell us explicitly why they're writing. Luke says his uh, aims are there in the first four verses of Luke chapter 1. John tells us in chapter 20 why he's written his Gospel. But for some of the others, they don't actually say, this is why I'm writing. You have to kind of deduce why they're writing in the way that they are from how they write. One of the great clues in Matthew as to his aim is that he quotes so extensively from the Old Testament. If you were to flip back with me to the very beginning of Matthew, the very first thing that Matthew does is give a genealogy. Um, And what he's really trying to show is that before Jesus came on the scene, there was 2,000 years of Jewish history before that. And Matthew wants to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that, so the genealogy is intended to connect what's gone before with what's happening now. But there's more than that. If you flick, uh, let's just take some examples. Chapter 1 and verse 22 Matthew describes some of, some of the things that happened with the birth of Jesus. What does he say? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. In this case, Isaiah. This happened because the prophets predicted that this is the way it would happen. Going to chapter 2 and verse 5. This is what the prophet has written. Later on, um, in verse 17 of chapter 2, Matthew says, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. And so on and so on. And you find all the way through, we could go on through Matthew. What Matthew's trying to do is show that when Jesus comes into the world, it is not random, but it's everything that's happening is happening for a reason, to fulfill all the years of history that have gone before. So why would Matthew be doing that why would he be keen to write like that well think about it Matthew's maybe writing here I don't know 60 AD 30 years after Jesus has died and risen again but he's writing to Christian communities he's writing to new fledgling churches some of the people in those churches will be Jewish Jewish We've been born Jews. We love being Jewish. We're proud of our heritage. After all, Jesus was Jewish. All the ceremonies that go with that, we circumcise our male children. We observe all kinds of Jewish rituals. It is our life, and we love it. On the other hand, there are people in these fledgling churches. They're Gentiles, they're not Jews at all. We're not religious. We haven't grown up with any sense of that history. All those rules and rituals mean nothing to us. And yet we find ourselves in the same church, wanting to love and follow the same Jesus. But we're coming from very different standpoints. And it's very possible, I think, that Matthew is writing to a church or a series of churches who are so delicately balanced between the past and the future. And he writes his gospel to remind them of the life, teaching, work, death, resurrection of Jesus. Let's uh, frame it in a slightly more extreme way going need some help here um, Richard can I ask you and maybe Tim to come and give me a hand here J- just to hold something uh, you, you can go on this side and just hold that and you go on this side as f- I want you to stand as near to the wall as you can uh, right up against the wall and just hold up what you've got. Let's caricature it in this way. The Jewish group, represented by Richard here, they focus on obedience. What we want to emphasize is the fact that we are keen to keep observing the laws that God has given to us. This other, if you like, non-religious group on this side, they say, we don't want anything to do with that. What's important... Is faith. And what you've actually got here is a church with two distinct groups of people in it. I know there'll be a lot in the middle, but I'm just trying to make it extreme. These two groups. On the one side, we have obedience with no faith. On this side, what we've got is faith, but with no obedience. On the one hand, we have people that are teaching that the way to know God is to keep rules and be very religious. These people emphasise God's holiness. On the other side, we have people who say, no, 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 no. What you need to realise is that God is love. He accepts you the way you are. He's kind and forgiving. But this group draw the wrong conclusion that that means that it doesn't matter how you live. You get that? This is a church. Two different groups in the same church. On the one side, you have morality. On the other side, you have laxity on the one hand you have rule keepers on the other hand you have potentially rule breakers and more than that, this side have a superiority complex we're better than everybody else this side have an inferiority complex, we're not as good as anyone else can you, can you see that? these guys think they're up there these guys think they're down here do you know what the problem is? sorry that both of these extremes miss the point of Jesus coming. And the reason Matthew records this to a church, the reason Jesus said it to a group of people sitting on the side of a mountain, is because both of these extremes are wrong. And the right way, biblically, is for these two ideas not to be separated at opposite ends of the room with their backs against the wall, but for them to come together. Gee, beautiful little harmony now, See? As they come together, there you go. If we could pay them to act, they wouldn't get any money, would they? Thank you. The point is that biblically, faith should lead to obedience. Both these extremes are wrong. Let me just um, demonstrate that for you. I don't don't want to linger with this. This is something that you can do at home. But just turn with me. Keep your finger on Matthew. Just turn to Romans. Page 1128. 1128. Romans chapter 1. Paul often says more in his greetings. You know than. We would say in a letter. But um. in Romans chapter 1 I just want to point out verse 5 he's really talking about his mission through him and for his name's sake we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the what? the obedience that comes from faith we're not calling them just to obedience we're not calling them just to faith but we're calling them to the obedience that comes from faith And if you think that was just like a mistake or he's exaggerating, if you flick to the end of the book, to chapter 16, not only does he say at the beginning, but he says it at the end. Verse 20, well, 25. Now tell was able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might what? Believe and obey him. The obedience that comes from faith. In a weird way, trying really hard to be good and giving up and not trying at all both missed the point because they both missed Jesus and the big picture here is that the early church the first church is needed to hear that the gospel is grounded in Christ Jesus himself the connection between the old and the new the root of real life change authentic Christianity is not found only in obedience or only in faith, but in the obedience that comes from faith in a relationship with Christ. And and we, we haven't got time to dwell on this. And the superiority and the inferiority that go with our wrong conceptions are irrelevant. There is no room for superiority because you can't be good without christ and there is no room for inferiority because christ loves you and died for you so that you could be part of his family so the gospel is both humbling and confidence inducing at the same time only the gospel can do that in a way that religion can't so now we can see something of jesus point and why matthew writes jesus ends with this amazing and clear illustration two builders one wise one foolish And he closes Matthew chapter 7. Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine. And puts them into practice. Is like a wise man. Who built his house. Upon the rock. He's speaking to the religious. And the careless. And urging both of them. To build wisely. One side will say. I can do it on my own. I can can be good enough. I can be moral enough. And you rely on the fact that you're a good person who keeps the rules. But the other side says, I just can't do it. I could never ever live up to what God wants me to be. And so I give up and I hope that God will love me and forgive me anyway. Both of those extremes miss Jesus. Both of them avoid digging deep. Both of them have no foundation. And both of them will one day be shown to be empty. According to the word of Jesus here. Jesus is warning both the religious and the careless to wake up and build their lives on him. The superior need to be humbled and the inferior need to be encouraged. But in the end both sides need to come to Christ. He is the one who makes true life possible for both sides. And can enable your house In the metaphor to stand. Why then is Jesus the rock? We could spend a long time on this as well. Let let me give you three reasons why Jesus is the rock. And they're really simple. And you know them all. His birth. Jesus we were talking about this on Thursday night funnily off in the Christianity Board. Jesus did not begin when he was born in Bethlehem Matthew tells us that when Jesus was born his name was to be what? Emmanuel which means God with us his birth is unique he is not a mere man or a clever teacher or some charismatic leader who got lucky this is the creator, the Lord God entering the human race How else can you explain the things he did? His birth was unique. Secondly, his death was unique. Some people think that God hates them. But how much more loving could God be than to enter the human race and to take on his shoulders the consequences of our failure and to die in shame to pay our debts? The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave God is a generous, loving, and kind, and merciful God who pays the debts that we owe so that we could be free. His birth, His death, and His resurrection. Do you know there is no other religion anywhere in history or geographically in the world that boasts a founder who died and then rose from the dead? Isn't that an incredible claim? He's not just a prophet. He's not just a mere man. His birth, his death, his resurrection signify that he is in a class all by himself. The Lord Jesus. The judge, the creator, the Lord. He is the rock. When you come to him and believe on him and build on him, And entrust yourself to him. The storms may come. But you will stand. Because he is the rock. Well that's the big picture. We said we are going to close with. Some applications. I think what Jesus wants. Is for us to build wisely. Doesn't he? Let me just close. By thinking about the foolish man. Because that's how Jesus closes. So we'll assume that if we're not foolish, we're automatically wise. So we'll think about the foolish man and the opposite of that. will be wise. There's four things that mark out the foolish man. And these are applications for us. First of all, he was in such a rush, wasn't he? This is the man who wants a shortcut. He wants house, but he doesn't want to build properly. I think the lesson for us is to slow down and think. Do you know, sometimes the rushing about that we do in life all really boils down to avoidance strategies. I don't really want to face the real me. I don't really want to face Jesus. Let's just throw the house up. People in Yorkshire say it'd be reet. It'd be reet. Let's throw the house up, it be reet. Jesus says, No, it won't be reet. Slow down and think about the life that you're building. Don't be in such a rush. Dig deeper. Secondly, learn to listen. Have you ever been to Ikea? men love going to Ikea not they bring the cupboard home and they open the box and there's those crazy cartoon instructions that have big crosses on them for things you're not meant to do and big ticks and you go oh, yeah I don't need those I can build a set of drawers and then you've got bits left over afterwards and you think why did I not read the instructions we're in a hurry this foolish man trusted his own judgement I can do this everything will be alright in the end his problem is that he's not listening is he to anyone else he thinks he's got life sussed I'll build a house it'll be fine slow down learn to listen thirdly very quickly we need to learn to think long term don't we This man was not thinking about what would happen when the weather turned bad, was he? Was he thinking long term? I looked it up, and the word for wise apparently appears 14 times in the New Testament, and seven of those times is in Matthew. One's here. There are two others, but four are found in another story Jesus told about ten bridesmaids who all had lamps. Five of them had a lamp. Five of them had a lamp and a little can of spare oil for the lamp. And the bridegroom was late. And the first five, all their lamps went out. Why did Jesus tell that story? Well, he said that these second five were wise. Why? Because they planned for the future. They thought about what was to come. I think Matthew used the word wise here because he's alluding to exactly that issue. This foolish man had the foresight; didn't didn't have the foresight to think carefully about the long term. I live for today. I don't really want to think about consequences. I don't want to think about tomorrow, next year. I certainly don't want to think about eternity. In Luke's account where he talks about the man, Luke says he dug down deep to the rock. I think this has got the idea in it of shortcuts, you know. You can get away with shortcuts in good times. But never when trouble comes. It's easy to be careless when things are going well. And I think what Jesus is doing here is reminding his hearers and reminding us all these years later that however badly or well your life might go, in the end, the thing that will define your destiny is your relationship with him. It is very possible for you to have a nice, comfortable life without following Jesus. Your house will look exactly like your next door neighbour's. And you will get away with it for now. But in the end, in the longer term, when all of those comforts are gone and all the things you've relied on are stripped away and you have to stand before God, on that day you will need so much more than just hoping for the best. If you're going to stand. I think that's exactly what Jesus is shocking his hearers into thinking about the last thing is to remember that Jesus is utterly crucial and with this we close I want to impress upon you as Jesus impressed on his hearers the importance of coming to him not just listening but doing something about it I want you to hear these shocking simple and certain words and I really want you to realize that Jesus loves you and doesn't want your house to be washed away but he rather longs that you would come to him place your confidence in him and build on him the one who is the rock therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice with a great crash. Oh man.